Okay, so let me give you a little bit of background. We are, we are actually going through the chronological life of Jesus, and the only one of the, the four Gospels that is listed in chronological order is actually the Gospel according to Luke. He says he lists it in chronological order, so that is in chronological order, but he doesn't mention everything. So he ha- everything that he mentions is in chronological order, but there are things that occur in the other Gospels that we go and we look at and we fill in the pieces where Luke intentionally or intentionally just left sections out because these things had already been covered. And, and uh, so we'll look at complementary passages. We'll also look at new par- passages as, as we follow the chronological life of Jesus. What we had finished a few weeks ago was this big change in Jesus' ministry, where he originally was teaching and he was preaching to, the, to, uh, to all. And what happened was, eventually, after about a year, a little over a year into the ministry, the Jews opposed him, the leadership, and the multitudes followed in the op- opposition, saying that Jesus was only able to heal the way he healed and only able to cast out demons the way he cast out demons, by he himself being filled with demons. And then Jesus proclaimed upon them the unpardonable sin. And that sin is just what it says. It is unpardonable, cannot be pardoned to that generation. That's not a sin that we can slip into today. It was to that generation, and it was to that generation as a whole. Now, individuals could be saved out of it, as was Paul, for example, But as a nation, they were under condemnation, and that was going to occur in 70 A.D. So there was a prophecy of the the destruction that would come. And then, as we spoke about the last few weeks, is that there will be uh, this change in ministry, and Jesus would no longer just go and heal masses of people. He would only heal individuals based on faith. Prior to the unpardonable sin, there was no requirement of faith. He would heal people. Sometimes people would say, I don't even know who it was who healed me. No requirement of faith. Now there's a strict requirement of faith. He no longer teaches openly to the masses as he did before, like, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. He only teaches in parables. The scriptures even say in multiple places at this point, after the unpardonable sin, he only spoke in parables. Never again did he speak without a parable, except to his disciples, this little group of disciples, he would clarify things to them in private. But to the masses, he only spoke in parables now. So there's this important change that occurred. If you want to pick up with us, uh, if you go to my website, jmtour.com, you can, you can see the different messages that have gone on. And the last month or so of messages, or six weeks of messages, really cover this change that occurs. And unless we understand this change, we think, why this duality of ministries? Well, there is a strict change. Now Jesus is under what's called the ministry of silence. He no longer speaks openly to the masses except in parables. We are in what's the longest day recorded in the Gospels. This day started out with Jesus healing a man who was mute and also filled with a demon. That's what got the Jews to say that he himself must be, Jesus himself must be filled with a demon, the king of all the demons, because he's able to do this, this feat that that, uh, no other Pharisee, no other person in Scripture could ever do, only Messiah would be able to do. And so he proclaims upon them the unpardonable sin on the same day. He proclaims new relationships on the same day, that relationships now in this new kingdom are going to be based upon faith 
in God and not just your blood relationship. In other words, Judaism was a bloodline descending from Abraham. It was going to change based on faith. And now, he, he, then he goes in and he starts uh, teaching them differently. He starts teaching them in parables. And we went over the nine parables of the new mystery kingdom. Jesus called it the mystery kingdom. The epistles call it the mystery kingdom. Meaning something that was not revealed in the Old Testament, now only revealed in the New This mystery kingdom is Christendom. Not just the church, but much broader Christendom. And we gave reasons why it couldn't have just been the church. Now we're going to pick up a portion. We're going to pick this up in Luke chapter chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. And let me just give you a prelude here. Luke 8, 26. This is all still the same day. We had talked about how they had uh, gone out in a boat. Jesus had asked them, and they went across to the other side. And now they're in Gentile territory. They're moved into Gentile territory. Jesus ministered a fair amount to Gentiles. Moved into Gentile territory. And this is the first example that we are going to see of what it's like, the characteristics of a person who is demon-possessed. Jesus healed many other people who were demon-possessed. And it says that he healed them. But never did it describe what the person was like who was demon-possessed. It just, he healed them. And why didn't it describe it? Because he didn't have to prepare them for this mystery kingdom prior to the unpardonable sin which occurred earlier that day. He was going to establish a messianic kingdom which would last a thousand years. But that has been put on hold because of this mystery kingdom coming in. Now he's training the disciples and you and me for the ministry of this mystery kingdom. So we get now a detailed explanation, the first we ever had in this chronological life of Jesus, of what a demon-possessed person is like. And what I want you to think about is, remember, earlier this same day, Jesus himself was spoken of, the Pharisees said of him, that he himself is filled with demons. Only by this could he do the healings and the casting out of demons that he did. I want you to think about the life of Jesus and what his characteristics are like versus what we're going to read about a man who is filled with demons. Of Jesus, it says, he had the prince of all demons in him. Now we're going to read about a man that just had regular demons in him. And contrast in your mind the characteristics of these two people, of Jesus and this man who is demon-possessed. So we look now in in, uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadareans, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I got to do with you? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demons into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. Now a herd of swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him, that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep 
place into the lake and drowned. Okay, so, this is a, a really interesting passage here where, where um, this is the first characteristics we see of a man who is demon-possessed. Now, this one was really deeply possessed. He had a legion of demons in him. A legion is 3,000 to 6,000. That's a legion. And he called himself legion. Now, whether that means he really had 3,000 to 6,000 demons or whether he just had many demons in him, because he says we are many, doesn't give us the exact number, we're not sure, but it was probably a very good number of demons. In the thousands of demons had entered this one man. Now, when we read the parallel passage in in Matthew, it says that there were two demon-possessed men, but one of them was more possessed, and Mark and Luke only focus on this one particular man. This is is as if... As if uh, um, I were to say, I went to Washington and I met uh, President Obama. Let's say I said that. And then I go out and I tell another person, I went to Washington, I met President Obama and Mrs. Obama, Michelle Obama. Now, would one person compare with the other and say, well, Tour went and he met with, Mr. with President Obama and the First Lady, and the other person says uh, he met with... Tour said he met with the president. Would they say, wow, Tour's a liar because he told me he met with the president and he told you that he met with the president and the president's wife? No, I met with the president and the president's wife. It's just that when I was telling this person, I only focused in on one person. You see what I mean? There's nothing wrong with that. It is not a lie. It is just that one person is focusing in in particular on on one particular side. So, Matthew mentions that there are two, but there's one in particular that is really filled. Now, uh, the other thing that's pointed out here is that in in Mark's Gospel, it it gives us the number of swine, the number of pigs that were there. There was 2,000, a herd of about 2,000 swine. You say, well, the Jews never should have been herding swine anyway because they weren't supposed to do this. This was Gentile territory. There was no dictate upon a Gentile not to eat of pigs, not to eat animals. Remember, the animals for the Jews had to split the hoof and chew the cud. The, 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 the hogs will, will split the hoof, but they don't chew the cud. They couldn't eat it, but they're in Gentile territory. <clears throat> Gentiles were under a different set of commandments than were the Jews, even to this day. So, so these things are different. So there was no problem with them having swine. <clears throat> And, and if you look at this, now look at the characteristics of this person. And we're going to just, just go back to uh, Mark. And if we, we look back in Mark chapter 5, uh, it says, it says uh, in verse 1, le- read another description of, of this, this demon. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadareans. And when he had come out of the boat, <clears throat> immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. <clears throat> who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and, <clears throat> and the chains had pulled, him ap- pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could tame him. Neither could they tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. So you see the characteristics of a demon-possessed man who's really filled. 
Does this look like the picture of Jesus? Here's a man that says that he was running around naked. He'd sit in the tombs. He'd gash himself with stones. When they would bind him with shackles, he would break them. He was totally uncontrollable. This is the first picture we have of a man who is really demon-possessed, really filled. Then you have the picture of Jesus. Totally opposite this. Why is this happening? Because what Luke is doing is he's contrasting for us what Jesus would be like had he really been filled with demons like the Pharisees said. Jesus said, John the Baptist, John the Baptist neither came eating nor drinking. He says, the Son of Man came both eating and drinking. You said of John the Baptist he had demons. You said of me that, that I'm a glutton and a drunkard. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Or wisdom, in the other gospel, says wisdom is vindicated by her children. He says, you make comments about me. You make comments about John the Baptist. But think about what you're saying here. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. You will hear people maybe coming against Christianity. Once in a while you hear about a professor. And I don't know why professors feel like they have to do this. If they don't like Christianity, just ignore it. But when they come out against it, watch that professor's life. They're not going to be very happy people. Find out if they're married. Find out if their spouse really still likes them. What you can really do is find out whether their children still like them. If a person has to openly oppose Christianity in an open forum and speak of it as if it's foolishness, there is a good chance their children will grow up not liking them because they are bitter and angry people. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So when you see somebody pontificating and you think that they're really great and they start coming against Jesus in your faith, get to know something about them. See inside their home and you will see you don't want to be like them. Not that they are particularly filled with demons. They may be. But they're going to be propagating unhappiness. They're not going to have happy lives. It's one thing to ignore it. It's another thing to openly come out against it. Jesus is the most compelling character in all of humanity. Will Durant, who wrote the the history of civilization. It's it's like these eight huge volumes. You can get this history of civilization. On the portion where this, this agnostic Jew is writing about about Christ. There's a chapter called Caesar and Christ because they lived in the same era. He he says of Jesus that this character of Jesus is so utterly compelling that if these twelve apostles had made up this character of Jesus, had just thought up all these things that Jesus could have said, that that would have been more miraculous than all the miracles that Jesus is said to have done. Because the character of Jesus is so absolutely compelling. The way He addressed the woman at the well. The way He addressed the multitudes. The way He addressed the Pharisees when they tried to trap Him. The way He dealt with the poor and the needy. The character of Jesus is so utterly compelling. I was speaking with a man, a Korean man, and I was sharing Christ with him. And he told me he reads the Bible every day. I said, so what do you think of Jesus? He was not a Christian. He he said he reads the Gospels every day. 
I said, what do you think of Jesus? He said, Jesus could not have been a mere man. Because no man could do what this man has done. And a few years later, he came to the Lord. This, this, this Korean professor. And I knew he would come, because if you're going to read the New Testament, you're going to come to the Lord. Your heart will be opened. This is the character of Jesus, as opposed to this man. Think of this man now. Naked, gashed, with gashes all over him. Crazy, unable to be contained. It says, as soon as they got out of the boat, they sailed to the opposite side. And, and this is in, in, uh, in, in, in Mark chapter 5, verse 2. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there he met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. As soon as he's climbing out of the boat, remember that boat experience that we talked about last week? It was a pretty harrowing experience. And Jesus is asleep and he calms the winds and... You know, these guys are pretty wiped out. It was a very full day. And now it's evening. It says, when it was evening, they set out in the boat. So this is nighttime. So you've got this crazy guy. They don't have flashlights. Naked, gashed, and he's running at them in the middle of the night as soon as they get out of the boats. I mean, probably the disciples, let's go back and get, go to the other side and get back in these boats. It's a really a scary thing. Now, this man would so terrorize that community, they had tried to bind him and everything. And that community knew him well. Probably every time the kids in that community would go on a camping trip, <laughs> the counselors would tell these stories about the guy who lives in the, in the tombs and gashing himself and the little kids wouldn't be able to sleep at night. You know, it, it's that sort of thing. This is a scary guy. And he comes just bolting right at Jesus. And he falls right down on his face. And it says, um, let's pick it back up in Luke. In Luke chapter, chapter 8, verse 26, 27. And he stepped out on, there on the land, and there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. He wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him with a loud voice and said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. So, this man was begging Jesus not to torment him. He recognized Jesus. Jesus, demon-possessed people always recognize Jesus. You, you would think, well, why wouldn't it be great testimony? Because Jesus never wanted their testimony. Never wanted their testimony because the character behind the person giving the testimony meant very much to Jesus. And if the character wasn't good, he didn't want their testimony. And it says in, in, in verse 29, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. He had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. In, in another one of the Gospels, it says that he, was, he had been commanding the spirit to come out of him. Now you would think that here is the Son of God. Jesus commands the spirit to come out. Boom, the spirit's gone. Matter over. Dealt with. Right? Wrong. It didn't happen right away. Why? This is the training phase now for the disciples. Every other instance of casting out demons, Jesus spoke a word and the demon just gone. Instantly. Now, after the unpardonable sin, the change in the ministry, why Jesus, He speaks and, and He says, <coughs> He commands the demon out and the demon just starts speaking to Him. It's not coming out. Jesus is doing this as a learning experience for the apostles now. Jesus could instantly cast this person out, th these demons out with a word. He didn't do it on this occasion. Why? It's now a teaching time for the apostles. 
Because when you deal with demons <clears throat> and demon-possessed people, it doesn't always happen in the first instant you, you, you speak the word. He is showing us what the mystery kingdom is like. He is teaching them what it is like. That just because you say the word and they don't come out instantly doesn't mean that, you know, for some reason you're not saved or something. But what's interesting is that this man immediately recognized Jesus. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, in verse 29 of Luke chapter 8. For it had often seized him, and and they kept him under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? So remember, the way the Jews cast out demons is they would inquire, what is your name? The man would speak using the vocal cords of the individual. The demon would speak, say the name, and then it would cast out based on that name. Never before did Jesus use that methodology. That was the methodology of the Jews. Jesus just cast them out. That's why they said a mute man, a man who cannot speak, cannot have the demon cast out of him should he have a demon. Only Messiah would be able to do that, which is what was taught. Jesus then went ahead and he cast out the demon from that mute man. And so rather than say, indeed, that is the Messiah, the people were saying, this is, could this be the Messiah? This is what we were taught. And the Pharisees said, no, not in this case. Uh, in his case, uh, let's see, what did, how did he do this? How did he do this? Ah, uh, because he's filled with a demon. That's how he could do this. So, <clears throat> in this case, he goes right back to the Jewish methodology. Sometimes he used this method, sometimes he didn't. So, in other words, it's not so much the method. He asks him, what's your name? And the demon speaks out of the vocal cords of the man. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Because many demons had entered the man. And <clears throat> in verse 31, they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. Well, what is the abyss? Let me explain this to you so you get a good understanding. Sheol is the Hebrew word. Hades is the Greek word. Sheol and Hades are synonymous. Sheol you will read about in the Old Testament. Hades you read about in the New Testament. Those are synonymous. One is Hebrew, one is Greek. When people died prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus, when people died, they went someplace. They went to Sheol or Hades. That is the same place. They went to Sheol or Hades. Where was that? In the center of the earth. That is what the scriptures teach. That was below the ground in the center of the earth. Nobody went to heaven. There was no access to heaven prior to the, 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 um, the resurrection of Jesus. They went to Sheol or Hades. Now, there were two main sections of Sheol or Hades. There were two main sections. Remember, Sheol and Hades are the same thing. Two main sections. One was for good people, and one was for the bad. One was for the good, one was for the bad. The good was called the bosom of Abraham, or paradise. Jesus used both of those terms. Rabbinic writings always called it the bosom of Abraham. Jesus said of Lazarus, the poor man Lazarus, he went to the bosom of Abraham. What did Jesus say to the man on the cross who, who, who accepted Jesus? He said, this day you will be with me in paradise. There were two names synonymous for the good side of Sheol or Hades was the bosom of Abraham or, uh, or paradise. That is so when a believing person, a person who had faith in God in the Old Testament, died, their body was buried in the ground, their soul went immediately to the bosom of Abraham or to paradise. That is what Jesus spoke about in the parable even of Lazarus. There was also a bad side. Where the bad went. That bad side was divided into three different portions. One was Tartarus, one was the abyss, and one was hell. 
So the bad side had three separate sections. Three separate sections. Tartarus is where the demons of, of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1, 1, 1 and 2, you read about these particular demons. These particular demons went and had sex with the women of men, meaning human women, and they had these, these uh, crossbred individuals that were all died in, in the flood. Uh, right after that, God said, this is too much. Those particular demons were, were delegated to Tartarus. That is a permanent place. They will always be there. There was the place called the Abyss, and that is where other demons are sent. That's a temporary holding place. In fact, Satan is going to be put there for a thousand years, the scriptures say, during the reign of the Messiah, during his thousand-year Messiah reign. Satan's going to be locked up in the Abyss for a thousand years. That is a temporary holding place. Tartarus is a permanent holding place. The Abyss is temporary. That's where the demons were saying, don't send us yet to the Abyss. There was a third sector of that bad side, and that is hell. That is where the souls of people that did not believe in God went. That is still occupied and is still used to this day. When an individual dies, they don't know Christ, their soul goes to hell. That is a temporary holding place, as is the abyss. Those two, in, those two locations will end up permanent in the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment after the Messiah has reigned for a thousand years. After Messiah has reigned for a thousand years, Satan will be let out of the abyss for a time, and then he will be put with his minions and all these souls of these, these other individuals who went to hell. That is a permanent place into the lake of fire. So that, that gives you an understanding of, of where all these places were. They were talking about the abyss. <clears throat> they said, don't send us to the abyss just yet. And then we see this dialogue going on. They said, um, how about sending us into that herd of swine? And it says in, in, in one of the other Gospels that there were 2,000 swine there. There were 2,000 pigs. Uh, um, and so Jesus says, okay. And they, the demons come out of the man, enter the pigs. The pigs run over the slope and into the water. They didn't fall on a cliff. They ran over a slope and says they were drowned in the water. So the 2,000 of them go into the drown. And you, you say, well, why, why did the, the, the demons have to go into the... Animals. Well, maybe because demons have to occupy living creatures. Well, if that were the case, those creatures weren't living for very long. Uh, and if you say, well, that's, that's because Jesus didn't like, like uh, swine or pork or anything. No, it had nothing to do. This is a Gentile thing. that They were totally allowed to do this. We have no understanding why this dialogue was going on. We have no understanding why there was this permission going on. I mean, for all we know, you know, Jesus was was proclaiming deviled ham or something. I mean, we don't, we don't know what, what the rationale was for his doing this. You can speculate all you want. We just don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. But it's, it's an interesting dialogue goes on. Remember, Jesus could have just cast them out. Jesus had authority to put them in the abyss right then and there because they're crying out. We know you've got authority to do this. Please don't do this. Jesus says, okay, I won't do that to you. And they're the ones who choose to go into the swine. Jesus said, okay, I'll let you do that. And then the swine run over. Why all this is happening like this, we don't know. We just don't know. But it's an interesting thing, an interesting dialogue that is going on. I've told this story before. I was sitting in Randall's, just down the road here one day. And I was reading my Bible. I was sitting there in the, in the coffee area. I was reading my Bible. And I heard this guy come in. And I've, I've seen these demon-possessed people when I did prison ministry for 10 years. I used to see them more often. 
But he came in and he just started, he's just cursing. Just an older guy, just cursing, cursing. I mean, just terrible language. And often that's a telltale sign of a, a person who's demon-possessed. And, and uh, um, you know, I, I'm not going to chase them down, but Jesus didn't chase them down. And so he went off and he was cursing and he's saying, I want bluebell ice cream. And I'm thinking, well, just go get bluebell ice cream. So about five minutes later, he comes back and he's got this container of bluebell ice cream and he's eating it in the store. And he's coming into this section where I'm sitting. And I go, oh no, now I have to deal with this guy. And so I'm reading my Bible and I don't want to have to deal with it because it's always messy when you deal with demon-possessed people. I mean, this was messy, wasn't it? I mean, was this clean? No. I mean, you just didn't just say out and... They go away, and so th- this man is coming toward me, and I look at him. I'm sitting there looking at him, and he stops. He looks at me. He says, well, if it isn't one of the children of the Hebrews. Now, I'm Jewish by descent, but I don't have a sign on my, se- my head that says Jew. But he recognized immediately my descendancy. And so I thought, Okay, I'm going to have to deal with this guy. And I stood up, and I was ready to just, in Jesus' name, start casting it out. And as soon as I stood up, he looked me right in the eye, and he said, G-U-L-P, gulp? And he turned around, and he ran out of the store. I said, that's nice <laughs> to deal with him. But they recognized things. And then as soon, the Jewishness didn't scare him at all. But as soon as I stood up and I was ready to deal with him in the spiritual realm, he immediately recognized something of authority. Now, Jesus was experiencing demon-possessed people all the time. I've only experienced it a few times in my life. If you read in Revelation chapter 12, it says, When the Son of Man came, the demons just were cast down to earth. Jesus experienced them all the time. As soon as you hit the book of Acts, you don't have these daily experiences with demons. In fact, throughout this 25-year period of so that the book of Acts covers, you only have a couple of instances of experiences with demons. That's what we have today. Far less activity of of demonic activity than was present at that time during the life of Jesus. But what what is the outcome of this? So 2,000 herd of swine. So so where's Corey? Corey, what if you had 2,000 head of cattle that just... Ran over a cliff. That's a lot of cattle. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, that'd be a big loss for those poor guys who own that, right? That's a big loss. And this is, remember, in a day when a typical city may have had 10,000 people. Now, Jerusalem was much bigger. These were small cities. Or 5,000 or 2,000 people. This was a huge amount of money. Just ran into the ocean. Verse 34. When those who fed them, saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demon had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also, who had seen it, told them by what means he had been demon-possessed, and by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and he returned. Now the man from whom the demon had departed begged him that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. 
So, you see that, that uh, when these men saw it, they fled into the city. And they, they told about this experience. And everyone in the city knew this demon-possessed man. So they all went out to check. In the other gospel, it says the entire city came. I mean, everybody came. And they saw this man now clothed and in his right mind. Well, where did he get clothes? I mean, probably Jesus said to the disciples, okay, it's good. you know, an extra cloak here for this guy. Come on, come on, learn to give. Learn to... And, and somebody's got to provide a cloak because it's not good, you know, Jesus sitting there and a naked guy <laughs> sitting there listening to him. We've got to get this guy covered up. And he's sitting there and his right mind totally different. You come to know Jesus and your life changes. The day I came to know Jesus, my life changed. And, and uh, uh, then the people came out and you would think the people would say, Wow, this is tremendous. Come and be with us. No, they said, This is spooky. You've got to get out of here. This is often the reception. You, you see somebody come to the Lord and you think their family is going to be really excited about this. And family is an unbeliever. They're like, What have you done to my son? What's wrong with you? I don't want my son... I, I saw a guy once, he was robbing a, a laundromat. There was nobody there, he was breaking into the machines. And now I come in there to do my laundry, and this guy's prying open the machines. So I started sharing Jesus with him. He gave his life to the Lord. And so I walked him home, and he, he lived not far, and it was kind of on the way to my house. I was an undergrad, I had no car, and I would carry my, my, my laundry to the laundromat and do it. And I was walking back, this was in my junior year, and then I went back to his house to visit him, and he wasn't there, so I left some Christian literature, and then I went back again to visit him, and I was met by his mother. In fact, I wasn't physically met by his mother, I had called his house because he had given me his number. His mother said, are you the one who's been leaving this Christian literature? I said, yeah, that's me. She said, well, you better stop doing it. I said, well, and, 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 uh, and I said, you know, your, your son was robbing the laundromat. Look how much better he is. She says, I'd rather have him be a thief than, be a, than have him be a, a Jesus fanatic. I mean, and, and you, you just you do a double take. Not everybody welcomes this. This is not an unusual response from other people. This was really spooky what he did. 2,000 hogs? I mean, this is a lot of money just ran into the sea. So they ask him to leave. And this man begs Jesus, let me be with you. But Jesus is not taking Gentile disciples at this point. And he says, you go back and tell your family. And he did, and that whole region is greatly impacted by this man's ministry because next time, we'll read it, when we eventually get to this, where Jesus goes back to the Decapolis, this area, there's many people graciously receive him because of the testimony of this man. So if you think that a new believer has got to have four years of theology teaching before they can go and witness, you are wrong. Brand new believers are some of the best witnesses. Because they have all these contacts in the world. They are some of the best witnesses. So just let them go. Don't worry about it. Just let them go. And what did this man proclaim? All he knew is what Jesus had done for him. His proclamation was this. And he went his way, proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. His testimony. All I know is, I don't know much theology, but all I know is I was filled with demons... I'm the guy who's all cut up and, you know, running around naked. That's me. And look what he's done for me. Clothed and in my right mind. That testimony is the testimony that he brought. That's the testimony that he brought. You compare this man in his demon-possessed state with Jesus. Totally different. 
Now, you look what happens. This man comes to know Jesus. He becomes more like him. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more you will be like him. The less time you spend with him, the less you will be like him. We, my wife and I went to a funeral yesterday uh, of some, uh, a friend of ours who passed away. And there were such godly men leading this worship. You could just hear them speak and they spend so much time with God. You could just see it in them and hear it in their lives. They were like Jesus. You spend time with Jesus, you read His Word, you fellowship with Him in prayer, you will be like Him. The less time you spend with Him, the less you will be like Him. The more you will be like this demon-filled guy. And you spend time with Him, He is this compelling person who makes us into the image of God, makes us into this image of being Christ-like. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you so much. Thank you for the compelling life of Jesus. Thank you, Father, how Jesus can change a life. And I pray for these young people that you draw them closer to Jesus. Father, for those here that have no idea what I'm talking about, that don't know you, Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and they would be saved. Father, use this day And the words that were spoken this day to impact their hearts, to search out more. And Father, for those that know you, but have not desired to go deep, Father, I pray that they would get to know you more. For the new ones on the the campus, Father, I pray that you would so work in their lives to use this experience and this time to cause them to grow in Jesus, to know Jesus more fully. Father, work in their lives, I pray. Father, I pray for these young people that you would so get a hold of their hearts to conform them to the image of Jesus, that they would be more like Him, that they would read the Scriptures and fellowship in prayer, spend time with God. Father, your grace abound, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.